Well, as we come to God's word this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer asking for the Lord's help. Indeed, Father, we need your assistance as we open your word this morning. We want to hear what your word says to us. We want to be instructed by it. We need to be taught. We need to be challenged. We need to be confronted. And Father, if there is to be any change in our lives, it's going to be because of your spirit's work in us. And so I pray now that you would help us to come before your word with humble hearts, to hear what you say, and help us to respond humbly to it. Father, recognizing that if there is to be any victory over sin, any change in our lives, it's going to be because your spirit accomplishes it in us. And so we ask now for your help. We thank you that you are with us and desire to help us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this summer we've been doing a series of messages that we've entitled uh, Biblical Solutions for Common Problems. Biblical Solutions for Common Problems. And our goal with this series is to help you to have confidence in the sufficiency of God's word to navigate your life. The things that you face, the things that you come across every day, God's word gives you the direction, the wisdom, the insight that you need to navigate it according to God's will. Today, we're looking at the issue of lust. Lust. Now, lust is not something that you hear much about in the church today. There's not a ton of books being written about lust. Uh, and yet lust is common to us all. Lusts are something that we all wrestle with. Now oftentimes, lust, when that is brought forward, it's too often narrowly defined. Lust can too often be thought of as only a man's problem or only a characteristic of the young or only relating to unrestrained sexual desire. Biblically, however, lust is much broader than this. It's not, it, the Bible doesn't allow us to constrain it just to those categories. In fact, lust is something that each and every person has. In fact, people do what they do because they're driven by their lust. They're driven by these strong desires that exist within them and they do what they want to do. And as we'll see, lusts are enslaving. Whenever somebody says that they have an addiction to something or they're trapped in some sort of behavior, it's because they are enslaved to their lusts. And these, our own lust that resides within our own hearts can create a prison for us. I believe this was helpfully illustrated by a story from history. Back in the 14th century, there was a a Duke of Belgium named Reynald III. Reynald III was grossly overweight and was a compulsive overeater. In fact, he was known by his Latin nickname, Crassus, which means fat. But the story goes that after a violent quarrel, his younger brother Edward led a successful revolt against him. And Instead of killing him, he built a room around Reynold in a castle and promised him that he could regain his title and his property 
as soon as he was able to leave the room. Now, this would not have been difficult for most people since the room had several windows and a door of near normal size and none of them were locked or barred. The problem was Reynolds' size. To regain his freedom, he would need to lose weight. But Edward knew his older brother and each day he sent him a variety of delicious foods. And instead of dieting his way out of prison, Reynold grew fatter. When his brother, Duke Edward, was accused of cruelty, he had a ready answer. He says, my brother is not a prisoner. There's no locks on the doors. There's, they're wide open. He may leave when he so wills. But Reynolds stayed in that room for 10 years and wasn't released until after Edward died in battle. But by then, his health was already so ruined that he died a few months later. He was truly a prisoner of his own appetites. Now, Reynold was literally a prisoner in a castle that was built around him. But this illustrates the fact that each one of us can be a prisoner to our own cravings and our own desires. We could simply leave if we would not fulfill our cravings. And yet, mankind feels compelled to obey them and they go to them again and again. We feel like we have to satisfy them, like we have no choice. Friends, I am here today to tell you that there is a way out of the prison of our lusts. We do not have to be enslaved. We do not have to be addicted to our cravings. Jesus came to set us free. Now, all of us have lusts to repent of, as we will see. But I know that there's some of you here today that particularly feel trapped. You've been enslaved in this prison according to your desires and cravings for many years. It could be a substance like alcohol or drugs, or it could be sexual lust, pornography. In fact, statistics tell us that there are many men and women here today that find this a struggle and a battle. It could also be a lust like compulsive buying, spending, whatever it is you feel trapped. And I hope that you hear this morning that by the authority of God's word, that there is a way out of that trap. There is a way out of that prison. You do not have to feel enslaved. You are able to be free in Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to look simply at two key steps in order to set us free from our lusts. How do we find this free freedom? There's two key steps, and we'll go into detail into each of these two steps. But let's begin by looking at the first step to freedom of our lusts, and that is to understand lust biblically. Understand lust biblically. Now, as I already hinted at, there could be some misconceptions around lust. We can think it's someone else's problem, but we need to understand what the Bible says. And to do this, there are three truths that we need to embrace to understand lust biblically. And the first is that lust describes you. Lust describes you. By this, I mean that we all have lusts in our hearts. No one is without lust. Lust refers to strong desires that we have inside of us. In the New Testament, lust translates the Greek word epithumia. 
It can describe a strong desire for something good, but it can most often describe a strong desire for something wrong or forbidden by God. And the Bible makes it clear that all humanity is driven by these lusts. In fact, let's begin by turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. The book of Ephesians chapter 2. Here Paul is describing the former state of the Ephesian believers. How they were before they came to Christ. And in doing so, he describes really what is the natural state of all humanity. When we look out at unbelieving mankind, this describes their state. And therefore, it describes us when we were in our unbelieving state as well. Ephesians chapter 2 Beginning in verse 1, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here, Paul describes that life without Christ, life before Christ, is one that is driven by passions. The ESV translates it here, the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. For every person on this planet, from the creation of the world until now, except for Jesus Christ, is described as living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The word passions here could be translated lusts, as some translations do. Simply put, humanity lives by the lusts of their body and their minds. These lusts do not represent God's will, but they represent man's will. In other words, this is simply the craving within every human heart to do what it wants. The, the driving power of lust is a self-centered desire to please, a desire to please ourselves, and that manifests itself in so many different ways. And this is the problem of humanity is that rather than giving worship to God, loving God, loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we love ourselves with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our passions, our cravings within us continue, are hungry to continue to feed ourselves and feed our desires. These desires originate uh, from the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 says that for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The word desires here is that epithumia, lusts. These lusts of the flesh and lusts of the eyes, these are not from the Father, but are from the world. And Galatians 5.16 and Romans 13.14 talk about these lusts needing to be gratified. They need to be satisfied. They want to be pleased. There are a hunger that wants food. Now, what are these lusts for? What do we hunger and crave? And again, as I said, these can manifest themselves in a thousand different ways. But just about anything can be our subject of our, our lusts, cravings. It's anything that makes us feel good. 
And again, this can take place, look differently in each one of our lives. But we can lust for, as for some examples, we can lust for possessions and for stuff. Crave for things, crave for more things. Those things that we just have to have, that we just want to have. Or we lust for money. We often call that greed or avarice, this, this craving for more money and then what money can buy. Oftentimes this craving in us for more stuff or more money presents itself as jealousy and envy because we see what somebody else has and we want it ourselves. In extreme ex examples, it results in stealing. Whether it's simply the pickpocket or it's the Wall Street trader. It can result in people overworking, sacrificing their families on the altar of money simply to get more. It can cause people to go into debt to have the thing that they want so badly. But not only do we lust for possessions and, and money, we can lust for power. We want to be in control. We can lust for power in our marriage. We can lust for power in our workplace. We can lust for power in all sorts of relationships. We want things to go our way. Again, in the halls of power, this can result in backroom deals and favors to move into those positions of power. But in our own uh, private lives in our homes that can result in fear and anxiety. We lust for power. We want to be in control. And because we aren't in control, we are fearful. We're anxious because our craving for control is not being met. We can also lust for attention. We want people to notice us. We want people to see how great we are, how beautiful we are, see the stuff that we have. We want to be praised for what we have. We lust for the approval of people. And, and in one sense, so much of our online technology, social media is built around this very craving that we crave not just connection, but we crave approval. We'll do anything to get the likes. We'll do anything to get the reposts. We can also crave comfort. We avoid pain and difficulty because we crave the comfort of feeling good. We avoid good things because of how we feel. In fact, most consumer goods in our country are sold to cater to this lust. They know that we don't want to feel uncomfortable. We want to feel comfortable. And therefore, there's this constant marketing our way to buy what we need to feel comfortable. This can be a craving and a lust as well. But as we know, most commonly, we lust for sexual pleasure. Now, God made us as human beings, made in his image, with a sex drive that is powerful. This is a powerful part of us, which is why it is so often co-opted. Our lust distorts what God made to be good for evil. It distorts what God made for the giving of life and for the blessing of others in order to turn inward and to serve ourselves. It turns what is supposed to be a manifestation of love to instead a manifestation of selfishness. And so we see, again, a thousand ways that this is played out within humanity. Lust for sexual pleasure drives people to sin in so many different ways. 
committing adultery, viewing pornography, and the list could go on and on. Now, Jesus describes, the Bible understands this, this lust, this sexual lust, as Jesus describes it in Matthew 5, verse 28, he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There is, Jesus understands that to, to look with lust is a very powerful temptation that exists. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 5, likewise talks about this form of lust when he exhorts Christians to control their bodies in holiness and in honor and he adds not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Again, what characterizes the unbelieving world? It's those who live according to the passion of lust, the epithumia. But the point I want you to see here is that we all have lusts. Again, we're going to all have different struggles. There may be one of these that I've mentioned or one that I haven't even mentioned that is a strong craving in your heart that you tend to go to time and time again that trips you up. But we all have them. We all have these cravings that are inside of us. For the unbeliever, they're controlled by these lusts. They can't help but obey them. For the believer, we have been set free from their power, but they still are there. They still battle us. They still wage war against our souls. And so we have to come to grips with the reality that even though we've trusted in Jesus, we have all, these lusts, these, these evil desires have not gone away. So first, lust describes you. But there's a second truth we must come to grasp, and that is lust can dominate you. Lust can dominate you. Lust is not a minor player, but a dominant one in our lives. Lust is not the puny player sitting on the opposing team's bench, but he is the seven-foot center who is slam dunking on you all game long. This is a dominant player that we've got to confront. In fact, Paul says that these lusts enslave a person. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Again, another description of a life before Christ. Paul says in Titus 3, verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This was what characterizes the unbelievers or slaves to various lusts, slaves to various passions and pleasures. It tells us that lusts are not just a bad influence. Lusts are like a dictator. They tell us where to go. They tell us what to do. And to those who follow these lusts, they are in shackles and chains. Our lusts hold the keys. They enslave us. Because you see, whatever we lust after, whatever we crave and we're willing to sacrifice for is functionally becomes a new God, lowercase g. It's an idol. These things that we crave and we want and we say, I will do whatever to get this. And so we sacrifice in order that we might be satisfied 
or their lust might be satiated. But here's the thing. These false gods, these idols that we crave after, these things that we think if we just have it, they make false promises, friends. They're, they're not a real God. They're a false God. They make promises of happiness, promises of joy and fulfillment, but they are false promises. They are lies. John Piper helpfully puts it this way. He says, sin has power through promising a false future. In temptation, sin comes to us and says, the future with God on this narrow way is hard and unhappy, but the way I promise is pleasant and satisfying. The power of sin is in the power of this lie. Satan's main strategy is to use a thousand devious ways to make this lie look appealing and persuasive. Friends, isn't this true? That our, our lust and our sin and our flesh desire to try to look like this future with sin is desirable, is promising, is going to give us what we want, is going to ultimately satisfy our hearts. And yet it is a false promise. It's an absolute lie from the pit of hell to get us to turn our back, to turn our hearts away from the living God. And yet our lusts buy into these lies over and over again. And each time we do, we are strapping shackles onto our wrists, enslaving ourselves once again. Friends, the lie of your lust is that if you give in to your cravings, you'll be free. To let go of these constraints, these moral constraints that the Bible puts on you, let go. Follow your heart. Do whatever you want. Just rush headlong. A lie that you'll be satisfied and happy, but they never leave us happy. They always, always leave us craving for more. You see, our lusts are like a bucket with holes in it. And as we pour water in thinking that we'll satisfy it this time, it drains out the bottom asking for more. In fact, to, to carry the illustration further, you could say that the more that water gets put into it, the more holes that get put into it so that our capacity to be satisfied lessens and lessens. In fact, even the unbelieving world has recognized this as it relates to pornography in, in that people are not satisfied at the same levels time and time again. They have to continue to look for more and more deviancy in order to be satisfied. The pornography of today is more transgressive than a generation ago because our flesh, our lusts are continuing to look for new boundaries to cross in order to be pleased. And this is true of all lusts. You lust after money and you will never have enough. The famous quote right from John D. Rockefeller, the richest man of his day was once asked how much money would be enough. And he replied just a little bit more. This is the voice of lust speaking. We crave and we crave and we want and we want and we gain and we gain and we're never satisfied. And so to understand lust biblically, you need to know that we all have lust and that this lust is enslaving. But there's a third truth and that is lust can destroy you. Lust can destroy you. You see, we can be lulled into thinking that as long as lust stays in my mind and in my heart and no one else sees it, that it's kind of benign. It's okay. It's just something I'm kind of dealing with, something that's just kind of on the inside. But lusts don't stay in our hearts, do they? Lusts cause us to act. They want to be satiated through action. Lust is not harmless. The Bible makes it clear that lust is highly destructive and the scriptures provide some examples of this. 
We saw in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 28, that lust can cause a man to commit adultery and thus to transgress, transgress his marriage covenant. And if this lust is continually uh, gratified, it will result in other transgressive behaviors which will destroy the marriage. Lust has the power to destroy a marriage. There's other ways that lust is destructive. Turn to Mark chapter 4. The book, Gospel of Mark chapter 4. Here Jesus is explaining the parable of the sower. The sower went out to sow a seed and he cast a seed among four different types of soils. He tells the, soil, he tells the parable and then he explains it to his uh, disciples later. And he talks about those that uh, fell among thorny soil. The seeds that fell among thorny soil and it got choked out and yielded no grain, Jesus says in verse 18, Mark 4, 18, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. The word here, desires for other things, is that epithumia, the lusts for other things. There's the cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, and lusts for other things. It's kind of an open category, lusts for all sorts of other things that we could have. But notice what the power of these lusts have. It chokes out the word of God. The desires, the lusts for possessions, the lusts for things, the affluence, the desire for what money can buy, can be so strong in us that it can actually choke out our love for God. It can choke out the word. It can cause us to be deaf to God's word. And so here we see that lust can strike great spiritual damage to a person. In fact, get this, lust can damn a soul to hell. Here in Mark 4, there's only one soil out of the four that receives life, that is, that is representative of someone who, who lives eternally. The rest fall short of God's salvation. The rest fall short of following after the Lord. And therefore, this soil that was choked out by the thorns is one that does not believe. It's one that initially seemed like they were following Jesus, but then the cares of this world and the lust for other things choked out the word in their heart and they lost interest in the word and they began to pursue the things of this world. Think of Demas in the epistles who was with Paul, but then out of love for the world, departed from Paul and, was, and abandoned the gospel. Back in Matthew chapter five, where Jesus talked about looking on lustful intent upon a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. He then exhorts us to take radical action on the lust. 
radical action of where that lustful intent comes from. And he says this, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus says it is better to go to heaven maimed than it is to follow after lust and be thrown into hell with your body intact. Friends, we've got to hear the scriptures loud and clear this morning. Lust can kill you spiritually. Lust can kill you spiritually. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Sin leads to death. He says this, do you not know that if you present your members to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either one of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. James does a full dissection of our lust and sin in James chapter 1, and I invite you to turn there, James chapter 1. talking about how our lusts, our desires turn into sin. Here in the ESV, it's translated desire, but it's the same word, epithumia, lust. Look in verses 14 and 15, James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This shows that sin is not just a spontaneous act. Sin is the result of a process. And it all begins with our lust, the craving of our flesh, and temptation entices us to believe and to give in to that craving and to think that that will satisfy us. It's like James is, is using the illustration of bait on a hook on the end of a fishing line and it's there floating in front of the fish and the, and the fish thinks it looks good and goes over and, and it clamps its mouth upon it. But it only realizes it's, there's a hook there until it's too late. We, we see sin, it's floating out there, it looks enticing to us, we go, we bite down and then we get lured in. And our lusts then changing the analogy from the, from the fishing to more a uh, uh, birth analogy, he says that verse 15, then lust, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Our, our lusts lead towards us sinning. And our sin then brings forth death, James says. Our bodies don't make us sin. Our lusts lead us to sin. Ultimately, if lust is obeyed, if, if someone continues to follow after lust as a pattern of life with no repentance and faith in Christ, then eternal spiritual death is the result. And so folks, we need to hear this warning this morning. That if you are enslaved to lusts, you are in spiritual eternal peril. You're hooked and it will lead you to death unless you cry out for help. You can't save yourself. You need Jesus to rescue you. You will stay enslaved to your sin unless you cry out to help. Your lusts will lead you to hell if they are not repented of. 
And so if you're here this morning, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, if you're continuing to live your life your own way according to your own agenda, and you find yourself enslaved to your lusts, friends, there is a way out. There's a rescue this morning, and that is through Jesus Christ, who went to the cross on our behalf, that our flesh, that our lusts might be slain, might be crucified, that we might be set free from those chains, that we might live free according to be sons and daughters of God. Jesus died to welcome dirty, depraved, enslaved people like you and like me, that we can find life in his name. And there really is no other way. It's like we're in a hole so deep with slippery sides. We can try all we want to try to claw our way out and climb our way out of the hole, but we can't. We need Jesus to save us. And so I implore you, look to him this morning. Don't remain in the darkness. Don't continue to try to follow after your own cravings, but look to Jesus and find help from him alone. Now, church, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we would like to say that lusts have been left far behind and they don't bother us anymore. But we know that while we are still in this life, lusts still do battle against us. And so not only do we need to understand lust biblically as we've been looking in this first point, but let's move to the second point now and see the second step to finding freedom and that is to battle lust resolutely. We not only need to understand it, we need to fight it. And that's where I want to turn now. When it comes to our lusts, we are in a fight for our souls. As we said, what's the consequence? There's eternal death at stake. And the Apostle Peter, Peter understood this. And uh, he's, that's why he exhorted his readers in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Again, the word passions here, epithumia or lusts, same word, the lusts of the flesh, and Peter understood the stakes were high. He says that these lusts wage war against your soul. The inner part of you, the very most valuable part of you, these things go for the jugular. They go for your soul. They seek to take us down. They seek to allure us and entice us. And notice how he exhorts his readers. He calls them sojourners and exiles you're just a pilgrim you're just passing through this isn't your home this is not what you were made for you were made for something greater a, a home a heavenly home and so we live our lives and we pass through but we're looking to that future glory and so as strangers as sojourners as exiles as someone just passing through this life don't look for the the ultimate joy and satisfaction from what you can get out of this life you were not made for this. You were made for something greater. And so he says, abstain from the lusts of the flesh. Now, as believers, we've been set free from our sin. As we said, we, the, the, the punishment of sin we will never experience because Jesus took it for us. Amen? And yet now, in this life, we are 
seeking to overcome by the Spirit's help the power of sin, that sin would have a decreasing effect, a decreasing influence in our lives. And one day we look forward to glorification in which the presence of sin will be totally eradicated. But now we still have sin. We are battling it. Before Christ, we were slaves to sin. We had to do it. We, we had to obey our lusts. But now by God's power and grace, we can choose righteousness. And in that choice lies our fight every day. Do we listen to God's word and obey it? Or do we listen to the lies and obey that? We have the choice a thousand times a day. We want to do what is right and we want to obey God's word, but the flesh lies close at hand, tempting us to obey its lusts. I think of it this way. Think of your heart as a castle and there's a throne there in the middle of the castle. Whoever sits on the throne is the one that dictates, that controls, that is in charge. And before Christ, who sat upon that throne in your heart? Well, it was you. It was your flesh. You ruled your existence. You did what you did and you, you the desires of your flesh, the desires of yourself, you obeyed those. You did what you wanted. But when we surrender to Jesus Christ, we confess him as Lord. And therefore, we dethrone ourselves and we say, Christ, we want you to take up residence within our heart. We want you to be Lord. We want your agenda to dictate my life. We want your desires, your will to be what I follow. But the flesh that once sat upon that throne, as we said, the presence of it is not totally taken away. It will be one day, but right now, it has been dethroned, but it's been thrown in the dungeon and locked up. Its doom is sure, but it still has a loud voice. And the haunting calls can still be heard through the castle as it seeks to allure us and tempt us. And so we know Jesus is on the throne. We obey and follow him, and yet we can be tempted day after day to listen to our flesh that still is there, and we need to put it to death. That flesh seeks to stir up our lusts and to rather than obey the voice of Christ, it wants us to obey the voice of the flesh. And so every day, friends, we wake up in a battle, in a battle going on in our hearts. And every day we need to put to death what is earthly in us and abstain from the lusts of our flesh. Now you, be saying, you may be saying in your mind, I want to abstain. I want to stop. I, want, I don't want to follow these lusts. But how? How do I find victory over these life-dominating sins after these, these cravings, these passions that are, seem so strong within me? Well, with the time we have remaining, let me give you three, rather four strategies from God's word for battling your lusts. Four strategies for having to battle our lusts and the power of Christ. The first strategy is you must consider yourself dead to sin. Consider yourself dead to sin. And turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 gives us an exhortation and a crucial, crucial reminder of how we are to think about ourselves in Christ. Being in Christ, being a Christian, you are no longer enslaved to sin. You don't have to sin. I hope that's liberating for you this morning. You do not have to sin. When temptation comes knocking, 
When those desires are there and are so strong, you do not have to obey them. Look at what Paul says in Romans 6, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves dead to sin, Paul says, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You are no longer a slave to sin. You're dead to that. You're now alive to Christ. You're alive to God. But why can we consider ourselves dead to sin? Why can you choose something other than sin? Well, it's because of what Paul says in verses 6 through 10. Look back up at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, verse 11, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Why can you consider yourself dead to sin? Because by faith you've been united to Jesus Christ who was crucified and paid for sin once and for all. It's because of the work of Jesus Christ in the gospel that enables you to be set free and not have to obey your lusts. It's because of our union with Jesus that we are freed and no longer enslaved to sin and instead are alive to righteousness. Again, sin will be finally destroyed one day, but its power has been severed. And so you must resolve in your mind that you are dead to sin. You do not have to obey the lust that rises up in your heart. You don't have to obey the cravings that are there. You are dead to sin. You don't have to sin. But there's a second strategy. First, consider yourself dead to sin. Secondly, though, put on Christ. We need to put on Christ. And for that, let's turn to Romans chapter 13. A few chapters to the right, Romans 13, verse 14. Here in Romans 13, Paul says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Here, Paul is, his concern is that the, the Roman church would not follow after its passions, would not follow after its lusts, would not gratify its lusts. And what does he say in contrast to gratifying the lusts? He says to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. To put on Christ is how we fight the flesh. And I believe that, this, that there's a moral component to this, that what does it mean to put on Christ? It means we put on his moral character. It means we follow after him. We seek to, to embody him as we live our lives. But I think first and foremost, before we are seeking to follow him and obey him and live as he would live, we first must put Christ before our eyes as all satisfying. If we're to put on Christ we must see him as first in our affections, friends. We must love Jesus more than anything else. With the eyes of faith, we must see that Jesus is the most valuable treasure in the world. John Piper helpfully calls this fighting fire with fire. In other words, the gospel is not just a cold bucket of cold water on our lusts. 
The, the gospel is a greater all-consuming passion for Jesus Christ. What is stronger than our lusts for the things of this world is to be our affection and our craving for Jesus. And yet too often our affection and our craving for him is so weak that the things of this world take dominance in our hearts. And so friends, before we can fight these things and for, for us to, to actually live out the character of Christ, we must seek to love Jesus and be satisfied in him and him alone. With him are pleasures forevermore. He is the fountain of living water. And yet, friends, we go time and time again to broken cisterns, holes in the ground that are dry and dusty that can hold no water, and yet we plunge our, faith, our faces in the broken cisterns of this world thinking that we're going to find satisfying water. But where the only place we can find satisfaction for our souls is in the Lord himself. He's the fountain of living water. And so we need to turn to him and remind ourselves daily that our satisfaction it will only be found in him. And so we begin each day drawing close to Jesus, crying out for help, seeing that his spirit would direct our hearts to him. And when we're fully satisfied in him, then we'll seek to live according to his word joyfully. We'll seek to live as he would have us. We'd be Christ consumed. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're saying, yeah, but I... I just don't see Jesus as all satisfying. I hear what you're saying, Pastor, but I, I just don't, he's not, Jesus isn't that all-consuming passion that he needs to be. And friend, I, you need to call out for God's help this morning. You don't have the resources in yourself to turn your heart. You need heaven to change you. You need God to radically transform your heart so that you would, would desire him, so that you would love him. So you need to get on your knees and cry out, Lord, please change my heart. Please help me to love you more. Help me to desire you more than I desire the things of this world. Help me to see in the eyes of my heart the beauty of your son. So we need to consider ourselves dead to sin. We need to put on Christ. We need to set our eyes upon him. But next, we need to look for the spirit for power to fight our lusts. That's the third strategy is to walk by the spirit. And for this, we need to turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And here Paul reveals what is God's answer to the flesh? What is God's answer to the cravings that we find that rise up within our souls? It's the Spirit. It's the Spirit. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. It says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul makes it clear here. How do we not gratify the desires of our flesh? We walk by the Spirit. If you walk by the Spirit, the promise in verse 16, you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. Because of the new covenant, because we have the Spirit, there is a promise that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh if we walk by the Spirit. But this is the war that's going on inside of us. We have the desires of the flesh, the passions of our lusts, and then we have the Spirit. And these desires are against one another. They're battling it out. Why do we not do what we want? It's because of the flesh. 
And the lust of the flesh lead mankind to do all sorts of wicked things. That's what verse 19 through 21 describe. And those who are enslaved to these lusts will not participate in the kingdom of God, as he says in verse 21. Again, lust can kill you. But Jesus wants to produce the fruit of his spirit in each one of us. His, he wants beautiful things to emanate from your life, not the ugly things of the flesh. Beautiful things like love, joy, and peace. Things like patience, kindness, and goodness. Things like faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the point is this, friends, that we can't live this way in our own strength. We need the Holy Spirit to work within us to produce this kind of power. And so the question is, are you surrendered to the Spirit of God? Are you seeking to have, let Him have His way in you? Do you seek to walk by the Spirit, sensitive to His leading? Do you listen to His voice as He works through your conscience to direct you away from the lying allure of temptation? And He seeks to draw you in your attention to the all-satisfying beauty of Christ. Friends, we cannot fight this, our lusts in our own power. We need the power of Almighty God through His Spirit. But there's a fourth and final strategy we must take, and that is we must starve our lusts. We must starve our lusts. As we said, our lusts are hungry. They want to be fed. They want to be obeyed. But in the power of the Spirit, we must learn to say no to them. Again, we've already seen Jesus say that if your right hand causes you to stumble or your right eye causes you to stumble, get rid of them. Now, does plucking out your eye actually solve the problem of lust or cutting off your hand actually solve the problem of lust? No. Jesus' point is that we need to take drastic action. This should not be something that we just do as a hobby on the side. We'll get around to it someday. This is to be something that we must take drastic action in our lives. It's a matter of our hearts. We do this because our souls are at stake. So how do we starve our lusts? First, we need to resolve. We need to resolve. Paul says in Romans 6, verse 12, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions or obey its lusts. Friends, we must resolve that we are not going to allow sin to reign in our bodies. We are not going to obey the lusts of the flesh. That must be a commitment that we make. I will do all that I can to not obey these lusts. Because you love Jesus, because you are alive in him, you must seek to live in such a way that Christ reigns in your life and not sin. Is this your resolve? There's a second way we starve our lust, and second, that is deprive. Deprive. We saw this in Romans 13, verse 14, where he says, make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision. This verse has been paraphrased this way. Don't pack a lunch for the flesh. You know, we do for our kids all the time because in case a little hunger gets, rises or maybe you've got a snack with you now, a little way to kind of calm those little hunger pains, a little thing to kind of keep that hunger tamped down. Unfortunately, we can do that with our lusts. We gratify it in little ways. Oh, sure, we're not going to the extreme. We're not doing the, the really bad things, whatever that might be in our own minds, but we find little ways to pack a lunch for and pack a snack for our flesh and we give in to our lusts in little ways but the reality is, friends, we're still feeding our lusts. This is where we need to evaluate and see where are we making provision? Where are we cheating? Where are we giving it something? We need to starve it so that it would die. And so we cannot give in to our flesh. We must deprive them of what they crave. 
But thirdly, we need to renounce. Titus chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 makes it clear that we need to renounce our lusts. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions or lusts, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Friends, God's grace has appeared. Who has it appeared in? It's appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's through Jesus that we are being trained like an athletic trainer, we're being trained to, first of all, to renounce ungodliness and worldly lusts. We're being trained, as the NIV translated, to say no to our lusts. And this is an action we actually must take. In other words, we can't just rest upon Christ in the spirit and sit back and do nothing. We've got to actually say no and turn away and renounce and deny and abstain. These are action words that the Bible calls us to. And so when the temptation arises, we need, in the power of the Spirit, crying out for help and seeking to do all we can in our power to resist the temptation, to seek to say no to the cravings that rise up within us, that we might kill it for the glory of Christ. Friends, we aren't doing this just to make ourselves better people. We are doing this so that God's glory might shine through us in our lives. We want to be light to a dark world and therefore we must have the character of Christ. And so we battle, we fight all of this so that Christ may receive the glory. And so simply, friends, we must understand lust biblically and we must fight lust resolutely. I'll close by saying that if you feel trapped today, don't go without talking to somebody. Talk to a, a Christian friend. Come talk to me after the service. Talk to a small group leader. We want to help you. Lust can kill you. We want you to have life that's found in Jesus Christ. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we ask that you would please be with us this week as we go forward and seek to live according to your word. Father, as we've seen, lust can so easily dominate our lives. It was with us before we knew Christ and it lingers in torments and tempts even after we have turned to Jesus. Satan wanting us to give in. Father, we just corporately confess this morning that we do not have the power in and of ourselves. We don't have the willpower to fight these strong desires. It took Jesus going to the cross to crucify these lusts. And now it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to bring victory over them. I pray, Father, that for those who are here this morning who have been trapped in darkness, enslaved to their lusts, oh, Father, would you please break them this morning? Enable them to desire the light more than the darkness, desire the light more than whatever shame they think may come, Father, may you grant them life and the strength to say no to the lie, to keep it secret. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.